Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. Welcome to Race and Democracy. We are pleased to have Dr. Piero G. Dagbovi, University Distinguished Professor of African American History and Associate Dean in the Graduate School at Michigan State University with us as a guest today. Uh, Professor Dagbovi. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, Piero, you are one of the most prolific um, scholars of African-American history of your generation. I really want to have a talk with you about both your new book, Reclaiming the Black Past, the Use and Misuse of African-American History in the 21st Century. But you've written about um, Carter G. Whitson. You're uh, the editor-in-chief of the Journal of African-American Studies, which is the leading um, publication of black studies uh, really in the world. Um, I want to talk to you about uh, the 400th anniversary of Jamestown. Uh, it's 2019. This is the 400th anniversary of when um, 20 and odd number of enslaved Africans from Angola uh, were stolen by British privateers uh, from Portuguese slavers and arrive in British colonial North America, Jamestown, Virginia. And this is the 400th year that Malcolm X used to always talk about and mm -hmm. say 400 years of oppression. So I want to talk to you about those 400 years, but really how do you uh, conceptualize that within the context of African-American historiography? Because I know you've uh, studied and, and written um, really the, the big book on Carter Woodson, um, um, who's, who's really our premier historiographer of African-American history. And you've really taken that mantle yourself. And in a way, I read Reclaiming the Black Past and um, other books that you've done, which are precisely about African-American historiography, as really um, both a contribution to intellectual history, but also reframing and forcing scholars, grad students, the general public to rethink um, how we situate African-American history intellectually, politically. So I just want to have kind of a free-form conversation about, about that and what you feel your role is and what our generation of scholars, but a new generation of scholars, how they're contributing to that as well. Yeah, let me begin by thanking you for your kind words and inviting me to speak with you today. And you've raised a lot of things. Um, that is, you put a lot of things on the table to grapple with. And I guess I'll begin by talking about the notion of 1619. And I'll speak about this a little later in my talk today. You're totally correct that African-American activists like Malcolm X have been using this notion of 400 years of struggle for a long time now. I think we could probably go back to even the era of the Great Depression and there were black activists who were talking about being in a state of bondage or being in a state of being denied basic civil rights as black people as a 400-year process. Yes, 1619 is a symbolic date, and the Academy is recognizing this. The general U.S. public is recognizing this. And I have various thoughts about this. Um, I think it's important as an uh, anniversary year, um, signifying the 1619 IE arrival of some, as you said, 20 Africans in Jamestown. Um, so it's important at that level. At a different level, it's kind of problematic because it assumes that prior to 1619, there was not an African presence in North America, what we now call the United States. And we have 
plenty of evidence to challenge that going back to the 1500s. And if we even want to go back earlier, we could borrow from Ivan Van Sertum as they came before Columbus and argue that there's a possibility that some of the Africans who were in ancient America, i.e. South and Central America, down in BC times might have migrated to North America. So using 1619 as a, as a starting point is problematic, but I, I can understand it. Um, the other challenge that I would pose to the 1619 paradigm is that some people equate being in North America as early as 1619 as being in the United States back in the day beginning in 1619, when we know that the United States becomes the United States after the American Revolution and the ratification of the Constitution in 1789. So I usually like to talk about the African-American experience based upon this continuum from 1789 up until the present, which is about a 230-year experience. So I'm not arguing that we say 230 years as opposed to 400 years, but I think things need to be put into context whenever we're at these moments of celebration. I'll just close by saying I actually do think it's good that it is an anniversary year marking 1619 uh, for 400 years of quote-unquote presence in North America since that's how some people view it because it allows us to stop and really think proactively about African-American history and culture in a society that tends not to want to talk about black history except for, let's say, during National African-American History Month during February. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, let's talk about reclaiming the black past, not just the book, but histori- historiography. Sure. Um, one of the things that I've noticed when we think about the new historiographies on the black power movement, mm-hmm. the civil rights movement, and really even contemporary sort of black urban studies, black feminism, intersectionality, is the presence of talking about racial slavery, Mm -hmm. um, where you have these contemporary scholars who are having read big studies, whether you're thinking about um, Ebony and Ivy by Craig Wilder, Mm -hmm. or The Half Has Never Been Told by Ed Baptist, or uh, Empire of Cotton by Sven Beckert, uh, Dinah Ramey Berry, um, The Price for Their Pound of Flesh, Sadia Hartman, um, the new David Blight, Frederick Douglass book that won the Pulitzer Prize. Yes. People are really connecting when we think about the black freedom struggle in the 20th century um, to racial slavery and racial slavery and the black freedom struggle's connection to American democracy mm-hmm. and sort of critiquing, challenging, reimagining, rethinking. And I want to want you to talk about sort of where do you see that historiography Where has it been? Where is it going? Your own contributions as well. Sure. As you pointed out, I like to consider myself to be a quote-unquote historiographer. That is, I believe that it's very important to know what has been written in the past in order to understand where we're going in the future in terms of our contributions to African-American history or any history for that nature. And one thing I've noticed is that younger generations seem less inclined to really go back and study what has been written about certain historical topics, especially when making their arguments about how original their work is. And I'll go back to our friend L.D. Reddick, who way back in the day when he was working with Woodson, this is during the first half of of the 20th century, um, during the Great Depression era, argued that enough had been written about slavery. Now, 
I'm not saying that his argument was totally accurate because we can still continue to write in innovative ways about slavery. But what he was arguing is that sometimes people um, might be rehashing certain arguments that have already been said and repackaging them for a new time. And I'm not saying any of those books that you mentioned fall within that category. I think they're all wonderful books. But I would argue that how we define what's original nowadays, um, especially with upcoming scholars, is is kind of challenging. And that's because a lot of times books today do not have historiographical sections in them, whether it's in the intro or as a freestanding chapter. And that doesn't mean that I want to read books that rehash all of the scholarship that's been published on the topic at hand so they can demonstrate what's original about their topic. But it is useful in some cases because a lot of younger let's say even say graduate students, when they're reading books, they assume that this might be the first book on a said topic. And if that's what their assumption is, they won't understand the contribution because they won't be able to place it within a certain historical time period. Now, I like the books that you've mentioned um, because all of them are in this kind of new genre, which is taking us back, I think, to the 60s and 70s with these narrative approaches to African-American history that are not just written for a specialized group of historians, but are written for broader public per se. And those type of books can have great influence on the public. And that's why I decided to attempt to do that. And I'm not as good of a writer as some of those of you have mentioned with my book, Reclaiming the Black Past. I wanted to write a book that was uh, more wide reaching in scope and touched upon topics that, you know, your average um, non-micro-study history reader could understand. Um, and that seems to be a trend now. And what I mean by that is that it seems that back in the day, in order to prove oneself, historians would have to publish one, two, or three books with those university presses, right? There seems to be a movement now where junior scholars are getting uh, contracts with trade presses earlier in their careers than perhaps previous generations had. And I think it's a good thing because it, it's making history um, more relevant. And I'll just close by saying that I think it's a powerful testimony that a lot of the scars that you mentioned are going back to the period of slavery um, in the 21st century because many people like to divorce that sensitive issue in American culture from the present when if you look at the African-American experience within this large continuum, you can never divorce that period of slavery, that period of bondage from the present state of African-American culture and society. Yeah, and, and to really amplify that, I think one of the things that these scholars are doing, and I think you're doing it too, and I want to talk to you about even just your first chapter here, uh, none of us, none of our hands are entirely clean, Obama and the challenge of African-American history, is this idea of looking at structures, this idea of, I think there's a contemporary generation who are really interested even as they're interested in narrative histories, they're very much sensitive to the way in which people, people's lives are shaped by structures. Mm -hmm. you know, and, we're, and by structures, I mean both structures of the nation state in sort of a, a Gramscian way, but I also mean 
this new focus, which has always been a focus when you read Frederick Douglass, Ida B. Wells, on African diasporic foodways. Mm -hmm. I also think this whole notion of African-American environmental history, which we've always had when we think about Du Bois and we think about, you know, um, um, Anna Julia Cooper, when we think about all these different folks, they were talking about the environment. But I'm interested in the fact, um, and you do it here, um, what does it mean? What is the challenge of African-American history when right now we have sort of the most capacious amount of it that we've ever had. We have mm -hmm. more studies right. of the civil rights movement, of right. black labor history, of black women's history, mm -hmm. black feminism, um, I issues of blacks and, and the medical field, mm -hmm. um, issues of African-Americans and STEM fields, mm -hmm. um, issues of African-American children during racial slavery and the civil rights movement, right. uh, the great migration globally, when we think about the age of Garvey by Adam Ewing and mm -hmm. others, right? Mm -hmm. um, Bobby Hill and the Marcus Garvey papers, mm -hmm. the papers of King. You know, what are some of the challenges? You talk in your first chapter about some of this and, and sort of the central place of Obama as the first African-American president mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as something who, somebody who challenges us as historians of this period. Yeah, it's interesting, um, those various subfields that you have mentioned and their impact on present-day historiographical thought. And I think it's logical at one level that we are beginning to learn more and more about the black past and all of its complexity. The foundations have been laid for a long time now. We can go back to the antebellum era with those early writers of the black past. We can start with Du Bois as the first African-American to earn a PhD in history in 1895. We can go through up until the present. And there's been a large foundation that's been established that allows these new innovative approaches to history to take place. And I think it's going to continue to get more detailed and detailed. And then here and there, there will be those, quote unquote, brave historians who will take on those larger periods of time, right, who will tackle the long durée, which is very challenging, because if you tackle the long durée, then you can be criticized for marginalizing certain periods. Whereas if you cover a short period of time, you can focus on that time and get into as much detail as you want to. So I'm really um, happy about th this new movement. Um, as editor of the Journal of African American History, I'm very pleased that our next issue is entitled, quote unquote, LGBT themes in African American history. And um, this is an area of African American history that has not been as cultivated and developed as um, it probably should be. And so we're cutting new uh, terrain, challenging uh, previous conceptions on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think it's just going to become more and more um, complex. One of the things that I was trying to do in that chapter that you referenced on Obama was to really explore how it is that he packaged and used African-American history during his presidency, during his two terms. And so what I did is I obviously started online since nowadays we can cheat and cut corners by doing research online and went to whitehouse.gov and looked at the speeches that he had given over the years. And as, as you know, since you've written on Obama, he's delivered more than 2,500 speeches. But I focused on those speeches that he gave focusing on topics in African-American history whether it was slavery, whether it was Jim Crow segregation, whether it was the civil rights movement. And I looked at how he decided to strategically 
describe and portray African-American history based upon his audiences at hand. And it's very clear that when he speaks to an all-white audience versus when he speaks to a quote-unquote mixed ground versus when he speaks to just a black audience, that his messages are oftentimes different. And he's a very calculated individual. I, I liken him in many cases to Booker T. Washington. And when I say that, some people might get things twisted because they might not view Booker T. Washington in the same way that I did. But what I mean by that is that he was pretty much of a chameleon when he was presenting African-American history to different audiences. And so I find Obama to be an interesting character to explore how African-American history is represented to the American public. And again, Obama is not as simple of a character to analyze in that respect. But I do buy into much of what Michael Eric Dyson says in his eloquent, wonderful book on the Obama presidency. Black presidency. Yes. Now, Obama leads me to the second chapter, Contested Meaning of Black History Month. Um, when we think about Black History Month, um, it's really grown from Carter G. Woodson's Negro History Week in 1926. Mm -hmm. By 1976, it's become Black History Month. Right. And for us scholars, I remember reading Derrick Bell in Faces at the Bottom of the Well, and he yeah. starts off that book talking about how you know Black History Month is a time when all these black scholars, and this was an early age mm -hmm. of black public intellectuals 25, right. 27 years ago, are getting on the speaking circuit. Yeah. And there's sort of a a, a commercialization yeah. of, of Black History Month and that I'd like you to talk about sure. with the, the positives and the yeah. negatives of that. Because on some levels, I think Woodson would be proud yeah. um, because we've gone from Negro History Week to right. Black History Month. Yeah. Um, but then there's corporate sponsorship. Some people right. soft pedal it. Right. Um, some people package it, like mm -hmm. you said, in specific ways. So let's yeah. talk about the, the, the pros and cons of Black History Month. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because um, it goes back to some of the issues that I delve into in that chapter on African American History Month. Um, many people don't realize this, but back during, quote unquote, the days of Woodson, there were these same type of debates. Um, Woodson, as early as the late 20s, 30s, and 40s, noticed that there were a group of who he called race traducers who were using African American History Month or Black History Week or Negro History Week, as it was called in that time, to make profits. And if you go back and read the Negro History Bulletin or the Journal of Negro History, you'll see that Woodson was actually telling these people, oftentimes entertainers or amateur historians, to turn over the profits that they made from their speaking engagements back to the association because they were, we're profiting about the association. off of a celebration. We're talking about the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History. That's now the Association for Study of African American Life and History. And can you tell our listeners what that is? Yeah, it was an association that was founded in 1915 by Carter G. Woodson that had the main goal of studying and disseminating information about black history. And it was a grassroots organization that not only included people from the community, but also scholars. And it's been around for more than 100 years. It's the oldest and leading association dedicated to the study 
of black life and history. Um, there's an annual conference every year. There's the Journal of African-American History that is associated with the association that was founded in 1916. There's the Negro History Bulletin that was founded in the 1930s, which is part of the association. And every year, the Association for the Study of African-American Life and History that Woodson founded back in 1915 issues a theme for Black History Month. And they were also instrumental in helping convert Negro History Week into Black History Month, as you mentioned in in the mid 1970s. So it seems like that's a great success. So what are what are some of the yeah. what are some of the um, positives right now when you think about 2019 yeah. of having Black History Month? No, it's a great success, and I think that um, you know the the problem is not having Black History Month just become. That token time of the year, especially in K through 12 education, where we acknowledge black contributions to American life and civilization. Okay, that this should be a month during which these contributions might be spotlighted. But the contributions of African-Americans to U.S. history and world civilization should be fully integrated into the curriculum of K through 12 education and education even at the college and university level. In fact, when Carter Woodson founded Negro History Week, as you mentioned, in 1926, he said that the ultimate goal was to create Negro History Year. And obviously what he meant by that was the full, quote unquote, integration of African-American history into U.S. history. And so while I like the fact that there's a time of the month where, you know, you spotlight black contributions, I also don't like, as you mentioned, the hyper-commercialization of African-American History Month, companies, businesses capitalizing it. And I'll just give one quick example. Just take Nike, for example. You know, they got a whole BHM line, a Black History Month line where they got Jordans, Kobe's, even Kyrie Irvins that are designed um, Some to be cloth. sold with Kente cloth on them to be sold. And some of them are kind of dope, but to be sold during Black History Month. I remember the first pair of Air Force Ones that came out for this BHM line. And it had like a quote from Carter G. Woodson in the insole. And I don't think it was totally accurate either. But the thing that bothered me was that, again, you're stepping on his words and possibly wearing them out over time. So, again, you have all these different companies and corporations. And this goes back to the 60s and 70s. And I mentioned this in my book where all these companies begin to make profit off of it. So, again, anytime something becomes popularized, it runs the risk of becoming commercialized, just like, let's say, hip-hop culture and music. Well, when we think about black history and the historiography, I want to talk about um, really how the the expanded historiography is impacting uh, not just the field of African-American studies, but U.S. history, political science, just Mm -hmm. interdisciplinary fields. Because in a way, I think that you can't run away from African-American history anymore. You can't run away from race anymore. Even from when I started grad school, which is now um, over 25 years ago, uh, it it was much more segmented and isolated, right? Whereas now when we think about, uh, you know, um, even, you know, a book by whether it's David Blight or Heather Ann Thompson on Attica Mm -hmm. or um, folks like Rhonda Williams, Mm -hmm. um, um, Dinah Ramey Berry, Mm -hmm. these books touch upon the American historical narrative and really uh, force 
uh, scholars who might not be African-Americanist to, to rethink and reframe um, what they're doing. So I, I'd like you to talk about what do you think the impact has been, um, especially uh, uh, concomitant with this is the growth of black studies. You're mm-hmm. in a, a black studies when you think about African-American studies departments like Michigan State, which right. offer PhDs yeah. and, and, and uh, produce so many credible scholars. You've produced over 15 PhDs yourself. Yeah. So I want you to talk about the impact yeah. um, that it's had. Yeah, there's a lot of growth in African-American history and black studies in general. And when previously I was mentioning um, different gaps in certain generations in a semi-critical manner. I'd like to highlight that I feel great to see all of these younger scholars who are making names for themselves, who are getting positions, nice positions, sometimes endowed positions at leading Research One institutions. This is great because it is adding to our representation in the ivory tower, which is something that's that's very, very important. Um, anytime a young upcoming uh, African-American historian or black studies scholar gets a contract or gets a job, it reflects well on, on the entire um, community. Um, at this point, I am very pleased with certain movements that have happened since the publication of my book, What is African-American History? And that's the problem of writing books, and you know this all too well, that are also reflective of the contemporary moment. That book came out in 2015, so I had to have the manuscript into the press by 2013, 2014. And part of my argument was that journals like the Journal of American History, AHR, did not feature essays by African-American historians who are dealing with African-American subject matter. That's why your essay, excellent essay on black power studies that appeared in one of these mainstream journals was very, very important for the time because you were part of a small group. Since 2015, there have been more and more, particularly African-American historians who have been able to have their work spotlighted in these mainstream journals. Um, I think that's a good sign because it's challenging the profession. And there are certain journals that are now very conscious of this because they've been called out. Um, and so I think that's a good move. Um, at the same time, I also believe that we also have to support our, our journals that specialize in African-American history, Absolutely. black studies, whether it is the Journal of African-American History, whether it's the Journal of Black Studies, whether it's the Black Scholar, where, whether it's the International Journal of Black Studies, whether it's the Western Journal of Black Studies, whether it's African-American Review, I could go on and on. These journals still need to be um, supported wholeheartedly. But I think we're making definite progress. But we also have to keep in mind that progress is all relative. If you were to look, nationally speaking, at statistics, you'll see that right now, 75 out of every 100 university professors throughout the nation are white Americans. And if you were to break down the, the black population of professors, it's about you know, four to five percent uh, at highest. If you were to go field by field, you might even, you know, see statistics vary, especially when you get to the STEM-oriented fields where African-American representation is not very high at all, whereas in the historical profession, it's a little better because historically we've had a presence um, in the historical profession in the U.S. going back to the, you know, early 20th century. I, I want to um, highlight what you're saying about the mainstream versus supporting our own institutions. Mm-hmm. Because I think one of the things, the reasons uh, we've seen this uptick 
uh, in the mainstream of African-American history has to do with not just, uh, well, two bookends, the Obama presidency and right. then also Ferguson, Baltimore, mm -hmm. Black Lives Matter. Right. Because when we saw the success of Ta-Nehisi Coates, mm -hmm. Between the World and Me, sold over 1.5 million copies. Right. Um, when we see the success of Michelle Alexander's yes. The New Jim Crow. Mm -hmm. uh, when we see right now, Jeff Stewart just won the Pulitzer for a brilliant, which I've read, Elaine uh, Locke. Elaine Locke, excellent uh, book, yes. thousand page mm -hmm. book, the definitive yes, biography exactly. of Elaine, of Elaine right. Locke. Mm -hmm. Just won the Pulitzer. Yep. Um, um, and Coates has won the Pulitzer. Ibram Kendi, one of my mentees, exactly. won, uh, won the Pulitzer, yes. won the National Book Award. Yes. For, for Stamp from, from the Beginning, beginning. a, a mm -hmm. book that I teach. Yeah. So w that mainstreaming is both good, mm -hmm. but but what we know historically is that white supremacist institutions can also cherry pick yeah. and, and sort of then, um, and we're seeing this with the new uh, proliferation of African-American young memoirs. You think about mm -hmm. no, no Ashes in the Fire. Right. You think about Patrice Kahn Colors. These are books that I teach that are brilliant, mm -hmm. but it's like, why is this happening right now? Certainly there's a commercialization aspect where these books are selling to millennials, to Generation mm -hmm, Z, mm -hmm. yeah. and, and, and places that didn't necessarily want black voices just several years right. ago. Right. Now are, are and, and we're, I mean, I read Time Magazine and they're quoting Kimberly Crenshaw and intersectionality and woke and all right. these things. Yeah. And, so. and, and they're also selectively quoting from yes. these folks. And that's why I have maximum respect for all of the people that, that you mentioned because they do remain committed to the cause and have high level of integrity when they're sharing their ideas despite the fact that there are systems that are probably attempting to use them in the name of diversity and in multiculturalism. I, I want to I close by asking you really a broad-based question, sure. but something specific, too. In your book, um, What is African-American History?, you spend a lot of time on civil rights, black power historiography. Right. And you make an argument about how, and I completely agree, how influential that historiography has been. One, the civil rights historiography from generations ago, but then the Black Power Studies historiography right. from sort of the hip-hop generation scholars right. like ourselves right. who really linked both, we did the deep reading mm -hmm. uh, and excavating of the past, mm -hmm. but we were really in touch with contemporary culture right. and we weren't condescending to that culture. Yeah. Um, what What is, I want you to talk about the impact of that historiography in terms of the new uh, sort of black power historiography yeah. and black power in a long durée because yeah. I would include people like uh, Keisha Blaine and yeah. different people, yeah. Ashley Farmer, of course, mm -hmm. who are connecting uh, yeah. th that. What What is the impact? Because I think the impact has been huge yeah. just professionally in terms of the what generationally uh, the, that hip hop generation has been able to do. No, it's a profound impact. Um, when I took over as editor of the Journal of African American History, one of the first things that I did was to do an environmental scan. And by that, I mean that I went and looked at all of the issues and volumes of the journal that were edited by my predecessor, Professor V.P. Franklin. And I noticed that the earlier periods were not covered as much as the later periods. There's been this move, obviously, as you've mentioned, to research more recent time periods that we're distanced enough from to be objective about. 
Um, there's still stuff coming out on, as you know, the quote unquote modern conventional civil rights movement. But yeah, black power studies in part sparked by your work and folks like Jeffrey Ogbar and William Vanderberg are beginning to look at the black power era a lot. And I'm telling you, at least when I look through catalogs, it seems that a good percentage of books coming out are on the black power era. And there's nothing wrong with this. I think it's great because there's enough time that's elapsed where we can objectively look at the period and there are many different levels that we can analyze it on, whether it's based on gender, whether it's based on region, whether it's based on an organization, whether it's based on a movement. I don't know if ever that this um, period will be totally uh, unearthed. We still need full-fledged books on the Republic of New Africa. We still need full-fledged books on the League of Black Revolutionary Workers. There's a lot of areas um, that, 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 that can be explored. And so I think it's, it's something that, that, that's good and positive. Um, at the same time, interesting debates have surfaced that I know that you've been privy to where you have folks like of our generation who were born during the black power era interpreting it, and you still got the folks who were in the movement alive, who are reading our stuff and are saying, no, that's not what happened. I was there. I knew Malcolm. I knew Baraka. I knew Angela Davis. Um, so I think it's an interesting um, play, and I think it's going to continue for a minute until the 80s and 90s becomes, quote-unquote, legitimate history. And I'll close by saying this, that I would challenge upcoming generations of historians to engage in contemporary black history. And what I mean by that is to deal with those periods I just mentioned, the 80s, the 90s, even the early 2000s. Because after all, that is history, if we define history as being anything before this present moment that we're existing in. But it seems that historians are sometimes a little conservative in that they don't want to deal with periods where people are still alive from those periods or periods that you know, they can't sit back and study in a so-called detached manner. Perhaps we don't want to play sociologists, which we should sometimes, I think, want to do. All right. Thank you, Dr. Pero G. Dagbovi, who's University Distinguished Professor of African-American History and Associate Dean in the Graduate School of Michigan State University, the author of numerous books and the editor-in-chief of the Journal of African-American History. And his latest book is Reclaiming the Black Past, the Use and Misuse of African-American History in the 21st Century. It's a terrific book. All his work is terrific. I would um, really implore everybody to go um, out and search his work and purchase his work and read his work. Really one of the most important historians and scholars of his generation. And it's really been a, a pleasure and a privilege to have you on Race and Democracy. Thank you. Thank you very much, Professor Joseph. Thanks for listening to this episode. And you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph, that's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H, and our website, csrd.lbj.utexas.edu, and the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.